following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 14th, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about the protests, the Tom Brady interceptions, and everything else that happened on the NFL's opening weekend. We'll also discuss Naomi Osaka's victory and her outspokenness at the U.S. Open. And we'll survey college football, the NBA, the Premier League, and other stuff that caught our attention during one of the busiest weeks in the annals of modern sports. Annals. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn Season 4. I'm in Washington, D.C. With me this week, as he is most weeks, not all weeks, most weeks, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and a few seconds of panic. Hello, Stefan. Great to have you. Almost all weeks. Almost. And sometimes I'm not here. Not right. to, not casting. Hey, you're making it seem like you're here all the time. <laughs> no, not here all the time. I'm here sometimes. Most of the time. A lot of the time. <laughs> it's good good when I am here. Uh, with us from Palo Alto. We're not long ago. The sky was a sort of Texas Longhorns burnt orange. It is uh, Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. What? Hello, Joel. Burnt orange? What? What are you doing? <laughs> I'm just accurately reporting on the hue of the sky where uh, in the West Coast. Oh, yeah, that's so fair point. Yes, I mean, yeah, all bad things can be traced back to burnt orange. Uh, although I will say it's been more of a gray. So I guess something like, uh, you know, buck, you know, Buckeyes gray sky the last few days here. That's an improvement. That's the uh, reverse Tom Herman going from Texas to Ohio State. <laughs> we're still unsafe to go outside, so it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. So what it's we're, real, we're really hoping for is Carolina blue. <laughs> right, exactly. Joel, you and I are doing a live event, online event, as all events are, on uh, Tuesday night, the 22nd, so next week, if you're listening to the show on the week of the 14th. It's going to be the first ever conversation between all of the slow burn hosts. Wow. So me. None of us have ever talked to each other ever <laughs> wow. before. That's right. You got me, you got Joel, you got Leon Nafak, who hosted the first two seasons, Noreen wow. Malone, who's doing the upcoming season five on the run-up to the Iraq War. Noreen's going to moderate. It's going to be really fun. We'll all be chatting at 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific for Joel on Tuesday, September 22nd. And we'll put a link with more information in our show notes at slate.com slash hangup. Does it have one of those names like Slow Burn Palooza? <laughs> so Leon's show now is called Fiasco. So I was thinking it's a Slow Burn Fiasco. So we can go with that. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
The 2020 NFL season began on Thursday in a stadium in Kansas City named for Native American imagery with a game between the home team, also named for Native American imagery, and the visitors, whose late owner during a meeting in 2018 about anti-racism protests likened players to inmates. So it wasn't, I suppose, surprising when some of the 16,000 or so fans who were allowed into the stadium booed a staged moment of silence in favor of, let me check the league's statement, the ongoing fight for equality in our country. Yeah, fuck that equality shit. Boo. On the one hand, the NFL might as well have painted its end zone messages of end racism and it takes all of us in even smaller, fainter type than it did. On the other, players locked arms and raised fists and knelt and sat and abstained entirely during the playing of the national anthem. The Falcons and the Seahawks dropped to their knees after the opening kickoff, that is, during the game itself. Cam Newton's cleats said seven shots and no justice, no peace. Joel, we'll get to the football, but let's start with the civil disobedience. It's been four years since Colin Kaepernick first sat down for the anthem during a preseason game, and I feel like if the NFL has learned anything, it's that its cowardly campaign to blackball Kaepernick and undermine its players was utterly and eternally shameful. Yeah, there were no fans in almost every stadium in week one, which eliminated more live booing and more stories quoting fans saying that they just wanted their sports to be free of politics. But players protested and the handoffs and the sacks and the Tom Brady pick sixes kept coming. Yeah, I mean, I guess one way to think about it is if you want to know the NFL's real values, think about who wasn't taking part in opening weekend. So right in the middle of the kickoff of week one of the NFL, Colin Kaepernick tweets, while the NFL runs propaganda about how they care about black life, they're actively blackballing Eric Reed for fighting for the black community. Eric set two franchise records last year and is one of the best defensive players in the league. Well, I mean, he, he had to put that in there so that no people could not make the argument that Eric Reed is no longer good, like the argument they did to make against Colin Kaepernick when he wasn't, you know, invited back to the league. So there's that for all the, the good talk, for all of the, you know, public awareness campaigns, for all of the in racism end zones. The NFL is still tacitly punishing two guys who have made public stands of the NFL's own racism and, and societal racism. And so it's hard to take any of the NFL's public stances on any of this stuff with any real sincerity unless they rectified that. Unless they you you saw, hey, they're inviting Eric Reed back, they're inviting Colin Kaepernick back. They won't do that. So that people are always going to be skeptical of them. But I also wouldn't read too much into the booing at Kansas City. And mm -hmm. the reason I say that is because the demographic of people willing to attend a large public gathering amid a pandemic <laughs> is probably going to lean uh, in a certain political direction anyway, right? So if I had to like if I had to guess the politics of someone paying to go to an NFL football game right now, I probably wouldn't go wrong with someone who thinks that this is all a hoax or that BLM has gone too far. And it's important to remember that the polling data of the last few months says that more people, the majority of people hold favorable opinions of Black Lives Matter. And that's something that we cannot forget as we will see, you know, more fans and more pieces of people talking about, oh, I don't want, you know, politics with my sports or anything. The polling data right now is what it is. It's on the side of BLM. It's on the side of protest. And I would hate for that to get lost because a few yokels, they're willing to go to see the Kansas City Chiefs play on a Thursday night 
decided to let off some steam. The cute politics out of sports thing is funny because they actually do a pretty neat job of dividing both the players and the league of putting the like social justice messages before the game. So you actually don't have to pay any attention to it when the gameplay starts. The announcers certainly aren't talking about politics. And in my experience, once the game starts, they do have those messages in the end zones, but they're pretty small and kind of blend in to the background. And you'd sort of... They painted them like light green. It was like grass green painted on white. So... You know, I think you have to get yourself into a real state of agitation to feel like they're really shoving this in your face during the game. And so there are people that actually want to get themselves in that state of agitation. And those are the people that we hear from. But something that really jumped out at me as far as the iconography and the and the ways in which the social justice movement manifest in the first week was that at the Vikings game, they had members of George Floyd's family very kind of present in the pregame. And the way that in which they had them present was that before home games, they have this like enormous horn and they have people like come and, and sound the enormous horn as a way to like ceremoniously kick off the game. And they had Floyd's family there and they had the, they didn't play the horn. They were just standing there and there was a moment of silence for George Floyd and for, um, you know, victims of police brutality or or racial injustice. And so on the one hand, this is absolutely ridiculous. And it just emphasizes to me just like kind of how overblown and silly all of this like NFL stuff is. We had this $5 billion stadium open in LA Mm -hmm. and it just looks so gross and ridiculous, especially with no fans to like see this building, this like palace to excess and just the enormous video board and no, no fans. And it's all just like, so, so NFL. And then just like kind of like self-importance and self-seriousness of like, we're going to put his family like next to the horn and not sound it. And that's like the significant gesture we're going to make as a league and a team. It's just like so fundamentally ridiculous. And on the other hand, it is kind of meaningful in a way. Like, I'm sure it means something to fans of that team, just like how the tra- the Saints traditions are meaningful to me. Like, I know all of the little things that go on when you go to a game at, at the Superdome. And so it's like, on the one hand, it's ridiculous. On the one hand, it is actually like what these like small things are things that probably do have meaning to fans. And and it's not just an empty gesture. But I'm curious where you fall on that, Stefan. Well, what, what can the NFL do? I mean, the NFL is built on all of these tiny little gestures that are designed to hook you. I mean, it is heroin, right? This is this is the the whole point of something like professional sports is to get you to care about people running around and doing athletic things and having some loyalty to uniforms and other traditions that these teams embody. So it's you know, what becomes a meaningful gesture? I mean, it's meaningful when the NBA says all right, players, let's take the day off. It's fine. You know, we're not going to punish anybody here. We actually support what you're doing. But when the games are scheduled now and the players want to go on, it seems like it's better than doing nothing. And, and and this is where it becomes complicated. You know, should we criticize the NFL for printing end racism in light green paint? 
in in the back of an end zone above like a 10 foot tall chiefs painted in the end zone or is at least putting it out there this very passive league that has had great difficulty justifying its actions and supporting its employees in causes that they care about because they're worried about networks and sponsors and the retrograde politics of their ownerships generally. Well, this is like what you were saying, Joel, right? It's like, it is actually bad if that's the extent of of what they're doing. Of what they're doing. And they're not doing the stuff that's actually more meaningful. Right. Well, I mean, we've got very powerful people. And as we've, you know, uh, recounted here ad nauseum. Many of the owners are Trump supporters and have given money to you know his campaign or his inaugural staff or event. So we know where a lot of their politics lie. They're probably not going to be aligned with BLM. So for them to gesture in the direction of BLM and racial injustice, I, I don't want to say it doesn't mean something because it does. They, it, if it, at a minimum, it shows that their labor force have asserted themselves in such a way that they think that they have to make these gestures, right? That- or that they no longer can get away with not acknowledging these gestures or attempting to punish these gestures. Exactly, exactly. Like, they, they can't just ignore it. They can't, they have to be out front on it, right, in, in one way or another. And so I think that that is valuable. But on the whole, yeah, I mean, the NFL is what it is. And, you know, I... I'm sort of reluctant to hold the NFL to the fire on this because I think that if we take basically any workplace, any institution in this country, and you put them under the microscope from the people at the top, like, you know, whatever the, you know, not masthead or the, you know, executive board or whatever, and you put them under the microscope like the NFL, you probably wouldn't find that much of a difference in terms of politics and the way that they regard a lot of this stuff. Because a lot a lot of what we've seen in the last three, four, five months has been symbolic. It's been gestures. And maybe that's because, you know, structural change is hard and it takes a while and, you know, it, it doesn't happen in the course of a few months. But, I mean, at the end of the day, the NFL isn't so different from the rest of America. This is the way things work here. Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't just the Vikings thing. I'm going to do a, a brief segue into college football. Did you guys see that <laughs> in the Duke Notre Dame game, the Duke uh, D logos on their helmets were black instead of white, and that um, the color change was made in support of the Black Lives Matter movement? <laughs> that made me, oh, I think, roll, roll my eyes out of the, the back uh. of my head. So Vikings, silent horn, you've... Uh, you're not you're not at the the top of the list but you know i did enjoy watching uh, the saints beat tom brady so i was able to separate the politics from the from the sports <laughs> that's right from the sports yeah. there it was a very odd experience being in a you know watching the game and and the dome being empty um yeah. cam jordan did troll tampa bay after the game in in his fashion saying that it's I was like an empty stadium. It felt like we were playing in Tampa Bay. It felt like uh, you know, we we were we were used to these uh, the this sort of environment. But they really need to do something about the the like AI crowd noise. I I know that they've hmm. talked with the NFL about having the kind of like local sounds and of, of every stadium and the not sounding the same for every stadium. But they do the way that they have like the cheering and the booing after the plays are over it made me think that there was a penalty after every play just because it's it seemed like the crowd was reacting to stuff after the play was over it's just like it it didn't sound like it 
fell in the natural rhythms of the way that crowds work in these games. And hopefully they'll figure it out more or hopefully there'll be a vaccine so they won't have to figure out more. But it felt, I don't know, Stefan, if if you've come up with like a, a power rankings of fanless sports, but this felt weirder to me than, than other sports. Yeah, I was going to say just that. And I think it might be that the bigger the stadium, the weirder it feels. You know, the basketball games, it feels like the NBA because I think the NBA is savvier about this kind of stuff in some ways. I think the NBA figured out by tinkering how to make it sound genuine. And I think we're also, our brains are kind of tricked a little bit into thinking that, well, they're playing in a really small place in these sort of makeshift arenas. Um, and it looks like there's some people there because there are some family members and there's a bunch of, you know, the, the benches look the same and the, 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 the scores table looks kind of the same. The NFL gigantism kind of works against it. It here. works against it here. And I think baseball, it's like, well, you know, baseball stadiums only, you know, are never aren't sold out day after day. We're used to seeing, you know, 7,000 people in a baseball stadium. So the absence of a crescendo in the game seems weird. But NFL stadiums, we are conditioned to to those being thunderous at all times. And I felt the same thing. The first two games I turned on were our local games here in Washington. So it was the Washington Oof. capital F capital T football team on one channel. And it was the the Baltimore Ravens on the other. And it was just it was weird. It was dead. And every time I saw the stadiums, it felt empty and void of emotion and excitement. I was, I mean, look, I wasn't psyched to watch Dwayne Haskins, even though, hey, they won. Um, <laughs> but it just felt strange. What did Dwayne Haskins ever do? He's yeah. like the 8,000th most objectionable thing. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess that was sort of the thing. I didn't quite know what to expect and i think probably like me the nfl is going to adjust their they're going to adjust as the weeks go along like Mm -hmm. i'm going to get used to the idea that there are no people in the stands and the nfl is going to get used to catering to people that are watching like we are right also i watch all games on red zone so i don't watch regular nfl games anymore so you know to be honest like my viewing experience wasn't Hugely disrupted by that. Um, mm-hmm. But but one thing I would say, and I, I kind of was surprised that it did not get a lot of attention. I mean, the Cardinals and 49ers played in like poisoned air yesterday. Right. Uh, and like, it yeah, was can you, okay. Can you, maybe, can you maybe, Joel, since you're out there, explain <laughs> to us what these thresholds are? I mean, the NFL said that its threshold for playing is like a 200 in terms of air quality. Yeah. But in Santa Clara, where the stadium is, it was only 170 or 180 or something. Exactly. Yeah. 200 is like, I mean, so the air quality that they played in was unhealthy, but like 200 is like, is another standard. And that's uh, where you really should not be outside at all. And I believe that's when, you know, a couple of years ago where there were wildfires out here that necessitated the canceling of a bunch of sports events out here, like uh, the Cal Stanford game was canceled uh, or postponed a couple, a couple years ago because of air quality over 200. And so, yeah, right. I live in the South Bay, which isn't too far from uh, Santa Clara where the 49ers play. And it was about 170, you know, 170 to 180 all day. So it was bad, but not so bad for them to cancel the game. But for the rest of us, the people that live out here, they tell us not to go outside. They say it is unhealthy to do activity outside. 
and I, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't have an NFL player's cardiovascular system right now. Can we do? Can we do like apocalypse prop bets, like over <laughs> under uh, what what's higher, air quality index or DeAndre Hopkins receiving yards? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what That's did really DeAndre horrible. finish with? He had like one fifty something and sixteen targets. He's okay, uh, he's right. happy with Kyler and Arizona. My last football related thought before we move on is the. Everybody's, you know, for obvious reasons, and we did it on last week's show, making a big deal of the like Cam Newton, Tom mm. Brady comparison. Uh-huh. It was really interesting to see, you know, people are like, oh, Cam had 15 carries. That seems about like right. They're adjusting the offense for him. He'd only ever had one game in his entire NFL career with that many carries. Yeah. Wow. Which I didn't, really? which I didn't realize. And 13, and, of, and 13 of them were designed plays. They weren't busted plays. Yeah. They called designed runs on 65% of the plays, which was the most for the Pats since 2008. I think that the Bucks, the Bucks have a lot of talent, actually. I think they're going to be fine, although Gronk looked really old and slow. Whoa, he looked washed. I'm surprised he wants, you know, I'd forgotten that he returned until the game was on yesterday. Gronk? Yeah. I'd, he looked really, really old and slow, and I. it's sad. Like, he should not be playing. Uh, yeah. And like, in all sincerity, not like it looks sad in like a kind of funny way. Like, it, like he really should not be playing football right now. One of the most moving things was him retiring and crying and saying, I hurt a lot, you know? And yeah. so well, and then too. dropping like 50 pounds and looking like a normal-sized human and, you know, changing his diet. And then to go back to being an NFL player had to be you know, an unpleasant experience for him that clearly is not completed yet. Well, anyway, all this is to say that I think it's too early to draw any conclusions about the Bucks or the Pats. Or the Saints. Or the Saints. All I'll say is, if the Cam Newton-Pats experience was so unbelievable, why'd they only score 21 points? That's all. That's all I'm gonna, that's all I'm gonna, that's all I'm gonna leave you with. But they look pretty good. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In the 2018 U.S. Open final, chair umpire Carlos Ramos warned Serena Williams after he caught her coach sending illegal signals from the stands. Words were exchanged. Serena was eventually docked a game. The crowd booed a lot, and Serena's opponent, Naomi Osaka, who won the match, was kind of an afterthought, left in tears during the trophy ceremony with Serena comforting her. Two years later, the 22-year-old Osaka is in a much different place. Her three-set victory over Victoria Azarenka in the final of the 2020 U.S. Open was no less strange, though, given that there was no crowd to cheer her on. But Osaka is a star now, and she used her voice and her masks to convey a clear message during this Grand Slam tournament. Stefan, a little less than three weeks ago, Osaka chose to sit out the semifinal of the U.S. Open warm-up tournament in New York following the Milwaukee Bucks decision to go on strike after the shooting of Jacob Blake. And after Osaka chose to sit out the entire tour, decided to follow her lead. Um, For the Open, she brought masks with the names Brianna Taylor, Elijah McLean, Ahmaud Arbery, 
Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, Philando Castile, and Tamir Rice. That's seven masks for the seven matches you need to win a Grand Slam tournament. She won them all, so she wore them all. And she explained that she did it in an uh, on-court interview with Tom Rinaldi after she won because she wanted to make people start talking. Yeah, I thought this was a perfect distillation of sports in a time of pandemic and protest. Individual sport, major championship, full focus, no distraction of fans in the stands. And even if staging this tournament and all sports is due mostly to TV rights and bills due and insurance clauses, I thought that like the NBA, so far the US Open was an example of how the moment can be met. It was gripping and it was inspiring on and off the court. Osaka looked totally out of sorts in the first set of her three-set win over Azarenka. She said afterward that she told herself it would be really embarrassing if she lost in an hour, which was funny and self-deprecating, which Naomi Osaka is. And then she started crushing and she won the match. But Joel, what was more impressive was Osaka the person. Josh, you said in a, that she's in a much different place than two years ago. She's a much different person. She's harnessing what was labeled shyness or immaturity when she was 20 into voice and power, and she's using it, I think, in a really genuine and smart way. And that's come through in tweets and statements that she's made. But really, it came through in that interview you mentioned, Josh, uh, with Tom Rinaldi after the win. Rinaldi uh, tried to get her to explain the message that she was trying to send with her masks. She batted it back like a cross-court winner. She said, what was the message that you got was more the question. I feel like the point is to make people start talking. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Tom Rinaldi is standing in for the rest of America right there, right? That you, I wish that Naomi had let it breathe just another couple seconds, just to let it sit there. Because maybe Tom Rinaldi would have responded, or maybe it just would have been awkward. But it would have the point would have been, we already sort of, like, what are people taking from these shows of solidarity, these shows of protest, right? Because the people that, you know, I guess I consider myself a person that believes that racialized police violence is a problem in this country. And people like me have been saying for years this is what these protests are about, whether it's kneeling, um, wearing T-shirts, whatever else, you know, showing up in the streets. It's about that. And we've made that clear over the last few years. The issue is the people that still don't get it, that still think this is about the military or respecting the country or something like that. Like, at what point are you going to come around and understand that that is what the protest movement is all about? Like that is, that is the origin point and that's where we're at right now. And so I like the idea that she threw it back, not just at Tom Rinaldi, but at the rest of the country for them, maybe to think for a second, Hey, what do these names actually represent? Like, what are people trying to tell us? So I would have liked to have known that, especially, you know, I mean, I don't presume that the uh, tennis audience is the NBA audience, right? Right. So I think that was really important that she did that. I also just, man, I really admire Naomi Osaka. I mean, it, that seems it's like such a basic bitch thing to say, but um, <laughs> I just, I, you know, I think that she's fantastic. And I also wonder about taking on that sort of weight at 22, um, because there's such a fine line between being young and naive and idealistic about the world like I was when I was 22. I was very ignorant about like all the things that were going on. And then also having the youthful energy necessary for being an activist. Like she appears to, maybe she's not going to be an activist, but she's engaging in some sort of degree of activism. She went out to Minneapolis and joined the protests with her boyfriend, who's a, a hip hop artist. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, you that is the age at which people are sort of finding themselves and finding right. their voice and finding their politics. And so, man, I mean, she's figured out a way to balance it in a way that, like, that is ideal. And, you know, it's encouraging that she is the emergent face in tennis. You know what I mean? Yeah. Joel, I've, I'm reminded of what you said about Jamal Murray when he made that um, post-game speech. He had the the names on his shoes and was kind of similarly asked what they mean to him. And and I think it, it sort of hurt you to see him in pain trying to explain what it meant to him and why um, this this movement has meaning to him. And I think maybe what Naomi Osaka did here is the answer to that, is like making the audience do yeah. more work instead of making Black athletes perform their grief and perform, like yeah. make the audience kind of understand where they're coming from. It's like, you know, she's um, throwing it back at the people watching and saying, my message is pretty clear. It's up to you to make the connections and draw those lines. And tennis is a really international sport. And so she has also spoken about how it's moving to her to see people in Japan, you know, Google these names and people around the world try to understand what's going on in America. And, you know, I mentioned... At the top, she's this, you know, she was 20 years old in 2018. She was kind of an afterthought in that match with with Serena. But she's gone past Serena Williams on the Forbes list as the highest earning female athlete in the world. $37 million a year. And it's a reminder that, you know, because of, you know, half Japanese, half Haitian, you know, she does have this like massive earning potential because of the Asian market in, in particular. And she is somebody who has a platform all over the world. And it's been a huge weight and burden on her, as she's talked about very openly. And mm-hmm. she has this voice, her literal voice is kind of uh, often soft and meek, and she's very kind of self-deprecating and has talked about how she hasn't given herself the opportunity to really appreciate what she's accomplished. And it's been kind of a weight on her. And then when she won this match, how she lied, she, she laid on the ground for 20 seconds. And when she was asked about it, <laughs> she said, I've seen other great champions do that before. And I wanted to see what they saw. I mean, it's she's like a pretty deep person and a very like thoughtful person and she feels this stuff very deeply and so joel again to like the fact that we know that she's a person who feels this stuff very deeply the fact that she didn't kind of perform her grief and her outrage in that way and was kind of more controlled is just like very impressive and um and and strong and smart of her Right. You said self-deprecating. I think I said it earlier too, but it's also like self-assured. There's a confidence there that she's really learning how to be as effective as you possibly can be while at the same time acknowledging the limitations of the platform of even the highest paid athlete in the world. In that statement that she issued when she decided not to play in the semifinal of the run-up tournament to the U.S. Open, she said, I don't expect anything drastic to happen with me not playing, but if I can get a conversation started in a majority white sport, I consider that a step in the right direction. So she's got her head on straight. This is a smart woman who is growing into a role that maybe she wasn't ready to embrace or fulfill when she was 20 but she seems to get it. She's There's no bullshit here. She doesn't take herself super seriously. And I think that's going to make her message more powerful to people that are willing to listen. 
I don't want to read too much into anything um, here because I am new to tennis. You know, I you know I've tuned in for a few Serena Williams matches over the years, and you know I watched the first two full tennis matches. Uh, you know, that I've seen in probably, you know, three years this past weekend. But I, am, you know, Naomi gives off a touch of melancholy to me. And I don't know, I don't want to, you know, again, I don't want to, you know, act like pretend that I'm some sort of therapist or that I have some sort of insight to her character. But I do wonder about the toll of taking on that sort of public burden, mm. um, especially so early. Because, man, I mean, what a gift it must be to just go into the world and play tennis or just go about your world and just go about your life and do things without feeling like you have an obligation to um, speak up for the humanity of a broad swath of humans. You know what I mean? Or to have to be political, to have to be an activist. And like that, it's sort of an expectation that we would have. Because I think that if Naomi Osaka set it out, that people would be a little bit skeptical of her in the way that they sort of are about Tiger Woods. You know what I mean? Like Tiger Woods got to be popular in a totally different context, but people have always sort of held that against Tiger that he is, you know, sort of set a lot of these fights out. And so Naomi... Well, Coco Goff has taken this on at 16. Yeah, yeah. And I just, man, it's inspiring and it also just makes me really sad. Yeah, but there's a simplicity, I think, Joel, to to the way she's doing it. You know, she's not like quitting the tour for a year to work on political activism. She's she's sort of very subtly, I mean, not subtly, but very simply integrating it into her job. And I think that's really effective. She's not pretending she's someone that she isn't. You can still tell that she is a quiet, um, self-deprecating human being. But she has something to but say. But the point is, wouldn't it be great if you could just do your job without having to integrate this stuff into your job? Yeah, yeah. like I think she's effective. There's no question right. about that. And she's a per- she's exactly the sort of person that you would want in that position. But it's also just like, damn, man, I just wish she had the benefit of being able to play tennis. You know, uh, Azarenka is not going to be getting those sorts of questions. Well, actually, Azarenka should have been getting some of those questions because she has sat out her political fight in her home country of Belarus. Yeah. She's friendly with uh, Lukashenko, the dictator, I don't know, friendly, but she has appeared with him in public um, with the dictator Lukashenko. And there have been massive protests in the streets in Belarus for weeks. Oh. And I don't believe that Victoria Azarenka had much to say about it. Well, so before the final, like one of the big storylines of this tournament was that there were three mothers in the final eight, which was the first time that had ever happened in a Grand Slam, Serena Williams, Victoria Azarenka and uh, Svetlana Parankova. And Parankova is particularly interesting because it had been three years since she had even played in a tournament. And the only reason that she was able to get entry into the U.S. Open was because of changes that were made because of Serena Williams, because of the push that Serena had made to, like, actually, let's have a maternity leave policy on this tour. And so um, if if not for that, then Parankova would have just had to have started back from zero. But instead, she got a protected ranking, was able to go on the tournament, and, like, played amazingly well for not playing a tournament in three years. And you know, you make a great point about Azarenka in Belarus, but I thought she had a really smart answer because all of these women are asked about what's it like to be a mother and you're mm-hmm. representing all mothers and you're mm-hmm. and so what are you showing other mothers out there about being a mother? And Azarenka was asked, how's this different being a mother than before you had a, your son? And I should say for some background that she had a long custody battle mm-hmm. and she was off tour for 
a while because she couldn't leave the state of California. And so she's had a, a kind of fraught several years. She, she, had, she hadn't won a match in a year before the turn, the, before the run-up tournament. So she's asked in this press conference, the kind of like boilerplate, how is it different being a mother than before you had your son? And she said, I don't know if I feel different just because as a mother. I don't identify myself on the tennis court as a mother. I still identify myself as a tennis player. Me being in the quarterfinals, I didn't get there by being a parent. I got there by being a tennis player. But it feels amazing that I can share this moment and hopefully be a good role model to my son. So this isn't an idiot either. Like that's a good and smart Absolutely. answer. And it was, it was one of the best ones I've I've heard about um, this this question of like, you know, being a mother on tour. And so I appreciated that. Before we move on to the men for a little bit, we should also get back, cycle back to Serena because Serena, you just said, Josh, is responsible for helping change policies about mothers on tour. And at the same time, it should be acknowledged that Serena is also responsible for players like Naomi Osaka and Coco Gauff and a, a generation of women players of color on the tour. And we saw the fruits of that in this tournament. And still there are these ingrained, you know, biases against her. Chris Everett, who was one of the ESPN announcers, said at one point, we've had great leaders on the women's tour, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova, and now it's Naomi's time. And I just like was, what are you saying? She also said something to the effect of like, it's good for somebody that everybody can relate to or rally around. Or, it was something along those lines. And I was like, hmm, that's sort of coded. I don't understand. What do you mean? You know, that that would have been a good time for Naomi Osaka to have been like, well, what does that <laughs> what does that mean to you, Chris? What are you saying? Our friend Gene Demby, Josh, noted that a lot of the black women players on the tour are using the infrastructure that Richard Williams, Serena and Venus's father, helped set up. Does that does that make sense here? And like, how should we factor, you know, Serena losing in another slam semifinal or final semifinal in this case uh, versus the the sort of the legacy that she that you know passed on to both finalists. Yeah, you know, women of of color and and women's tennis, I think, will, in my experience, kind of un- this generation uniformly say that they were inspired by Venus and, and Serena, and are also always very careful to note that it was you know Venus who was the the first and and has been um, kind of equally as important. But you know, the f- star power on the tour and the strength of the women's fields is, you know, you can largely just point to the Williams sisters' emergence as, as an explanation for that. And, you know, Serena played really well in this in this tournament and won the first set going away against Azarenka and then lost the next two sets. And it's just been kind of grand slam after grand slam here where this has happened to her. And you kind of want her to get the 24th title. It feels like it's overdue. And the older that she gets, you kind of wonder how many more chances that she's going to get. Obviously, her legacy is secure no matter what happens. But it just it seems like kind of at every tournament, it's always it's like always something that's preventing her from from getting that that prize. Yeah, I watched that semifinal match where she looked great early. And then near the end, I was like, man, is she tired or is she just moving slow? And it just, it occurred to me, I was like, oh, Serena's like an old tennis player, you know? And that's just 
sort of hard to overcome. You just wonder. I mean, I haven't, I didn't see the other matches, but it just occurred to me watching Naomi and watching Azarenka move around in the final. I was like, oh, I didn't see that sort of movement out of Serena. And yeah, Serena wasn't moving great in this yeah. tournament. I mean, she she actually got better as she went along, and the like kind of strange or sad thing is that that first set against Azarenka was the best that she looked in the tournament by far. And then she went out and lost the next two sets. Before we finish with the U.S. Open, let's mention that Dominic Team won the men's final. He beat Alexander Zverev. He's the first active player in his 20s to win a Grand Slam. The first player, the first new winner of a Grand Slam in six years. Is that right? Yeah, on the men's side. And I think there's been a lot of kind of talk about the fragility and and in a sexist kind of not really coded way about like oh like a lot of times the the women players like really struggle on their serve and um, they get really t- they get really tight and that's why there's so much parity in the women's game because the top players are kind of mentally fragile. It's like actually that's not true at all. It's just that the top three men's players are historically great and never lose to any of these right weaker players. And then in this tournament where Djokovic and, uh, you know, hits the lines person in the neck and Nadal and Federer don't show up and like somebody actually has to win. That's the rule that somebody has to win this tournament. They just, every player is like actively trying to lose. Zverev is hitting like 68 mile per hour second serves. Zverev and team both serving for the match in the fifth set can't get it done it it really looked like it was going to end in a tie somehow like well, it looked like someone was going to collapse um but forgetting the actual tennis josh i felt like i'm now ready to move on i am ready for team and zverev and my boy tsitsipas and daniel medvedev to move to the top of the sport and to be the focus of the sport i mean team and zverev had their own handshake it was really cute you know yeah i guess so. i like these guys no i'll just end by saying i don't i don't say all of that to mock them for being weak or fragile. The point is that it's actually just really hard. Like it is really, really hard to do this, to win a title like this. It's mentally kind of torture. It was actually torture to watch that match because yeah. of how bad bad it was. It almost seemed cruel that it was being televised. And so I think you just get more of an appreciation for the men and the women who are able to win these titles. And as team said afterwards, I think it'll be an easier time for me now that I've done this before. It better be easier because I don't think we could all like bear to watch anything like that again. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the proposal put forward by ACC basketball coaches to have a 350-plus team March Madness next year. 
Is it brilliant? Is it idiocy? Is it brilliant idiocy? If you want to hear our conversation about it, you will want to hear it. You have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. So this was a very busy sports weekend. And in this segment, we're going to try to get to a bunch of it. For me, weekends in September mean college football. Saturday was supposed to have been the season opener for TCU and SMU, the renewal of an annual rivalry for something we in Texas call the Iron Skillet. Now, SMU won last year for only the third time in the last 20 years. So as a TCU alum, I was gearing up for my Horn Frogs to correct the natural order of things. Also, I mean, SMU's best season in 30 years ended in like the Boca Raton Bowl. So just guys, settle down. You haven't done that much. I should have known better than to get my hopes up because SMU versus TCU was postponed after a number of TCU football athletes and support staff tested positive for the virus. In fact, TCU-SMU was one of several college football games called off amid our ongoing pandemic, including Virginia versus Virginia Tech, BYU versus Army, and Baylor versus Louisiana Tech. Unfortunately, many other conferences and colleges haven't heeded the warnings of TCU, which was managing a campus outbreak a week ago, and went ahead and kicked off the first full weekend of the college football season. Josh, your favorite team is currently the defending national champion. Were you excited to see the season kick off again? Joel, I seem to remember a couple of weeks ago you saying that if this Iron Skillet game was played, then you were not going to watch, or you were you were pondering not watching. And now, now that has been it's a, a, it's a complicated like, world. It's a complicated <laughs> world, Josh. The world is the world is always changing. Facts on the ground change. <laughs> Our friend Ben Mathis Lilly had, I, I thought, the best comment about this first full weekend of the college football season, which he told us, Joel. The sum, the sum total of the NCAA football response to COVID is that there are games on all the same weeks as normal, but they all suck until September 26th. Which <laughs> that's a great one. I, I, think, I think that's what we saw. I mean, look, I enjoyed seeing the Big 12 really fall on its face. Iowa State <laughs> losing to the Louisiana Ragin' Cajuns. Kansas Don't State, overlook Arkansas State. They're Kansas State losing to Arkansas State. <laughs> Kansas losing to Coastal Carolina. Texas Tech nearly losing to Houston Baptist, which I didn't know had a football program. I, I like seeing those storylines. I like seeing those games being played, both for aesthetic and uh, moral reasons, not particularly. Um, <laughs> and, and all of this is happening, Joel clear evidence that this is not going well. Like BYU is like, <laughs> we're going to win the national title. We're so awesome. We destroyed Navy. And then it's like, oh, we can't play our game now because all, because not all of our team, because like we have all these COVID cases. Like Virginia Tech has like had multiple games canceled. They're not scheduled to start until October now. It's like, this is not working. What, yeah, what are we, I actually don't understand. Like, what are people playing? I mean, you know, just think about Kansas State or Iowa State. Like they came into the season like it was already sort of a ridiculous prospect in the first place, and then you lose at home to the Raging Cajuns. I mean, now what? What do you What are you supposed to do? And I mean, and, and the rest of these games are going to be off and on the rest of the year. It just, <laughs> I just would like to know what's happening here. Like, what are you guys hoping is going to happen? Well, well, the thing that on the one hand makes both the most sense and the least sense is that with all this happening, with all that we just recounted, and. We have praised the Big Ten and the Pac-12 for opting out of this nonsense. We now learn that the Big Ten is about to have a revote and wants to actually, <laughs> seeing all of this, we're like, oh, here's an idea. Let's actually start the season earlier and than, than we had planned, and let's play in mid-October now. And just like all of these coaches, um, and it seems like it's really the coaches, at least 
as the public faces of these these schools, Stefan, are leading the charge mm-hmm. in the Big Ten, whether it's like Ryan Day from Ohio State or Jim Harbaugh from, from Michigan, and just being extremely adamant about, oh, let's look at what's happening now. We really need to be playing college football. We made the <laughs> wrong decision to not play. <laughs> It's the, the 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 walking this back is is crazy, especially when the Big Ten made such a point of stressing that they were relying on science and relying on studies and looking at at early studies about myocarditis um, in in athletes, and then forget the Big Ten for a second, just go anywhere else where. There are there's an explosion of cases among students on campus. I mean, or where there are teams playing football that have sent their students home. I mean, all of this is adding up to a you know, it's a it's a clusterfuck. Um, none of it makes any sense. Well, we thought of college football. We always talk about how regional of a sport it is, but actually, it's as much America's sport as anything else because there's been a fucked up, like inconsistent response all the way around. And sure. they're still trying to get through it. They're just like, well, you know, I mean, there have been some outbreaks here, but we might as well try. Like, so, I mean, it, it's like running they, the ball into the line on uh, first it, down, second down, third down, and then also on fourth down. <laughs> maybe on fifth down, too. <laughs> well, the the conceit is that we're just a sport like everyone else, right? That, oh, look, the NBA is working, and oh, look, baseball's okay, and oh, look, the NFL started, and it's discounting the realities of college campuses and college communities. They are not creating bubbles. Bubbles are working to the extent that they can, and when athletes have an incentive, like the millions of dollars that they generate in salary, or less in the case of, of the women's sports leagues, they can get it done. When there's an infrastructure that has a interest in making sure this works successfully and, no, and ways to control it, it can work. That can't work in college football, and we're seeing that. I was thinking about this with Josh's team, for instance. Like, LSU has had a bunch of guys opt out, like you know, Jamar Chase, you know, the best receiver in college football opting out. And I'm like, why is somebody that's actual NFL prospects doing this? Like, why would you risk? I mean, there's a there's a whole lot at risk here, but you could get hurt. You could get you could catch COVID and develop myocarditis, which could affect your career. Who knows? But like what why would anybody with any other option agree to do this? It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, I think there's this idea, like if you look at Trevor Lawrence as the kind of example number a one of somebody who shouldn't be playing and is playing. And it's partly, I think that program at, at Clemson and partly just a a mentality that you can see across the, the entire sport and the entire country of just like thinking that opting out is capitulating or we've worked I guess the 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 nicest kind of spin that you can put on it and the most like flattering spin you can put on it is like we've worked so hard to you know we deserve this and I don't want to let my teammates down I don't want to let my school down but also like we've done everything you've asked us to do we've been safe and like this is our reward and we want it, you know that that's that's the the mentality well, the reward should be that you're safe Right. The reward shouldn't be that you're playing football. And the, the the most disingenuous arguments, of course, have been from from athletic administrators and football coaches that, oh, the athletes are safer if we play because we can control their behavior. Well, they should just be safe whether you play or not. They can still follow the same rules. 
we have enough evidence to know that that's that argument seem it, it has like a it, it seems like it might plausibly be true but we have enough evidence at this point to know that it's not true it's there have been true. outbreaks in all yeah. these not all they these don't teams, know what they're so, doing but a huge number of teams have had right. had covid outbreaks yeah they don't know if they knew how to prevent these outbreaks you'd think they would have done it by now at a bunch of other places but there's I, a I huge just, financial incentive to do so right Right. And I, I just would go back to, you know, a couple months ago when we were talking about the, the nascent player empowerment movement uh, where, you know, guys were speaking up and they were, you know, going to hold coaches accountable. And, you know, even in the SEC, they're saying, we don't see enough. We don't see that you're doing enough to protect us. And all of that just evaporated, man. You know, we, the, the, we're in the fall and none of it lasted. And that was always my my primary concern about that is like once the get once you get them on campus, once you get them back in the system, they don't have as much of a voice. They don't have as much power as we think that they do, and it's just been sort of. I mean, is that fair though? Because well, like, because uh, yeah. the Pac-12 isn't playing. They're not I mean, playing. And the, the players well, we spoke to are. are I, but I think that the, this is a totally. I mean, I don't want to talk about you know. I don't want to like exaggerate the differences in culture, right? Out here, out west as opposed to in the South or in the Southeast or in the Midwest or whatever. But I think that, yes, the Pac-10 did pull that off or the Pac-12 pulled it off. But on the whole, like, I mean, we heard from a lot of other players that they were not, they were concerned about the circumstances under which they were going to play. I would like to know what they've heard or what they have seen that makes them think that this is still a safe decision. All right, let's move on to the NBA, which is what I was paying a lot of attention to over the weekend. There was basketball? Yeah, there was. Since last we talked, Giannis and the Bucks completed their tumble out of the playoffs. They lost to the Heat. Um, Goodbye, Giannis. Um, Hmm. Maybe forever. The Celtics (laughs) closed out the defending champion Raptors in a game seven. Not Uh, late. What's that? Not not forever. Not forever. But maybe maybe in Milwaukee forever. The Lakers absolutely pulverized Joel's Rockets. And the Clippers are in the midst of a really bizarre Meltdown, um, dropping games five and six, set up a game seven against Jamal Murray, Nicole Jokic, and the Denver Nuggets. Not bizarre in the context of them being Los Angeles Clippers, um, because this is like kind of classic Clippers. But given that teams don't have souls, um, and this is now a team that has Kawhi Leonard, it, it is bizarre in the context of like, for example, the Kawhi Leonard's career and and history and the amount of talent on this team. I'm kind of confused about what's going on, but there's going to be a game seven there. So the couple of things that I want to want to highlight in this uh, lightning round of a segment. Number one, Toronto Raptors, great job, made it really far, almost made it back to the conference finals after losing Kawhi. Kyle Lowry, kind of amazing, uh, amazing player, amazing persona. There's a photo, I don't know if you guys saw, that for me was the the best still image of the NBA playoffs, which is in that like double overtime game six, the Toronto one, there's just a still image um, that shows that there's the Chiron at the bottom of the screen, Toronto 125, Boston 122. And it's uh, Kyle Lowry standing next to Jason Tatum. And Kyle Lowry has his finger inside Jason Tatum's wristband. Just like, <laughs> just like being annoying for, no, you know, just like standing there, like, just like poking him under the wristband. I love you, Kyle Lowry. All right. Uh, item number two on my lightning round. Russell Westbrook getting in a fight with Rondo's brother during the Lakers rocket series. Um, Rondo's brother got kicked out of the arena from the family section. He apparently called Westbrook a bitch. Um, I, I'm sure 
a, a billion worse things have been said in NBA arenas. The problem is there's <laughs> not a crowd to round it out. But the thing I wanted to highlight is that Ray John Rondo's brother is named William Rondo, which I just think is a hilarious name, <laughs> that there is a William Rondo. Item number three, and this is about Joel's Rockets, the Daniel House thing. So Rockets six-man, valuable player in the the Houston small ball rotation, which was, we were told, going to lead them to championship glory. He gets kicked out of the bubble, and the reporting on this story was very strange. So the we heard that there was... Um, the possibility that there had been an unauthorized visitor in his room. Then there were tweets like Shams Charani of The Athletic sent out a tweet, but this wasn't in his actual story that said it was a female coronavirus staffer that was allowed into his room. Then there was reporting that Tyson Chandler was also involved. And then I saw a story on Yahoo that said, the COVID-19 official did not implicate House, but did say she had contact with Tyson Chandler. Tyson Chandler was, a, was ultimately cleared, and House was, was kicked out of the bubble. So we don't know what happened here, even though I'd imagine that there's like video, and these players are like surveilled within an inch of their life within this bubble. I mean, the, the main question that we had, I don't know the main question, but a question that we had going into this whole thing was how are the players going to have sex? That was the, that was kind of explicit in some corners, implicit in others. The obvious implication here is that House was fooling around. He does have a wife and children at home. And so we don't want to say that that's definitely what happened. That's definitely what a lot of people were assuming what happened. But Joel, I gave you enough preamble here. We need your thoughts on, on Daniel House, the Rockets, and all that has transpired here. Well, I mean, I'd like to point out that the Mavs didn't even advance to the second round. Uh, and the Spurs didn't even make it to the playoffs. They didn't bubble either. Yeah, right. Well, they didn't stay long enough uh, to, need, to need to get kicked out <laughs> of the true. bubble. But I guess, like, w- what I would think is that, I mean, on a slightly less fun note, when you put the players in this sort of a bubble, it brings a, the occasion for there to be all sorts of invasions of privacy. And that was the thing that I thought about. It was sort of gross that we know this, right? Um, and and because you're making me feel bad. No, well, I'm sorry. Well, I'm, actually, no, I'm not sorry for making you feel bad. But, no, I should, uh, <laughs> I should feel bad. Sometimes no, I, I mean, need to feel bad. This is not the sort of thing we would know under ordinary circumstances. But by going into the bubble, they've agreed. I mean, they they agreed to give up a lot to just go down there. And then this happens, and it shows you like why people may have had a lot of concern. Because you give up a lot of control of your life. You get up a lot of a control to the access and the people that, that have access to you and the news about your life by going into the bubble. And so um, that, was, that seems like a major privacy breach. And I don't know that that's necessarily fair for Daniel House. But I mean, the thing is, a coronavirus, it's a public health concern. And he's responsible for so many other people. There's no privacy in a public health crisis. <laughs> exactly. And so, I mean, I, I, I kind of go back and forth on that. It sucks for him. It sucks for his family. It sucks for the Rockets. And as far as the Rockets, man... All right, now let's flip it. Okay, Daniel Daniel House played for the Mavericks. Now let's hear what let's hear your commentary. Well, it's on, just on, typical on, typical <laughs> of an unserious organization, and uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you you'd expect that sort of behavior out of a Mark Cuban led team. Uh, <laughs> but I just want to real quick. I would like to uh, memorialize this era of the Rockets because Mike D'Antoni just said that he's probably not going to come back next year, and. 
I know that like the Rockets are a joke on social media that people laugh at James Harden and they hate the style of ball that they played. But it's worth noting that over the last four years, the Rockets had the highest winning percentage in the Western Conference. Regular season. And they were the team that showed that the Warriors were not unbeatable, where everybody else conceded <laughs> the championship to the Warriors in the previous years. They went ahead and challenged them, and I think that there's some respect in that. Hey, Sometimes, Joel, Joel, I think you, losing doesn't mean you're bad. Losing just means that you lost, and that's what I would like. Hmm, hmm? Yeah. Are you banging the table with uh, with the Rockets participation trophy there? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not. A, I'm not against the participation trophy. Actually, <laughs> the Rockets. I'm, I'm, the Rockets I'm showed that you can beat. That the Warriors are beatable if you just don't go over twenty seven on three pointers. That's yeah. all. Hey, look, that's, man. They should. Let's, let's, they should. let's not forget that Chris Paul's hamstring. You know, also played a role in the the Warriors advancing. Okay, that that can't be overlooked. I'm done with the Rockets. The Nuggets are really fun, man. Like it's Clippers, Clippers, Clippers. The Nuggets have come back from down oh. two huge deficits against. The oh, Clippers. wait a minute, though. That uh, Jamal great. Murray. Jamal Murray. Jamal awesome. Murray was averaging forty points a game in the previous series. What is he doing now? I thought he was, you know, Michael Jordan. What happened? I don't oh, know. Yeah, he had twenty-one <laughs> on, okay. on Sunday. Oh, he's playing a real defense now. Nikola, okay. Well, Nikola Jokic had thirty-four. He's playing a real defense too. They're a fun damn team. I would not be disappointed if it's not Los Angeles, Los Angeles. I forget who um, noted that Nikola, some, someone on, on Twitter, that, that narrows it down, uh, who noted <laughs> that Nikola Jokic looks like somebody who was like, in, given the power of being good at basketball by like a wizard. Like he was just like randomly chosen <laughs> out of the population of Earth to be endowed with the ability to play basketball. It was like, oh, I guess I can play basketball. This is interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I would like I wouldn't mind seeing the but I mean the thing is to for the season to end the way that it should, it should be Clippers versus Lakers. You'd think that the you'd think that the Clippers will be able to get it together, but you know, maybe the Clippers just aren't as good as we thought. Like we've been waiting for them to like Voltron into this, you know, contender that never really has emerged in the way that we thought it would. And Maybe they, maybe they just won't be what we thought they were going to be. And I don't know if that's the result of the Clippers or if that's the result of the pandemic and this weird restart or whatever. But yeah, it's just strange. Any team that loses under these circumstances, I don't know what to take from it. I don't know if it means anything. If you win under these circumstances, it definitely says a lot for you. But if you lose, I'm just kind of like, well, this was an unprecedented, weird shit uh, of a season. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think teams should like, you know, take take these losses too hard or take them to, you know, take them to mean something greater because who the hell knows what this season actually meant. Stefan, we've been prattling on for a while here. I know you wanted to talk about the Premier League, but um, we'll give you about 30 seconds. Go for it. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh, the second, watched the soccer game. Tell I watched the it. soccer game. Leeds, whom I afterballed about a few weeks ago, back in the Premiership after 16 years, had to play Liverpool in its first match and it was like the best game of the weekend maybe the clips nugs game was better but at least this was one and one a um the final score was four to three Leeds came back from three deficits and the premier league and liverpool particularly who won going away last season there are gigantic imbalances in payroll and ability and Leeds was fun and they played aggressively and this game was just crazy back and forth. And now I am totally smitten by Leeds, even if I kind of was already because of, you know, their history. So it was a great game, four to three. It was really, really fun. Let's just roll right into after balls and Stefan, because I'm in a generous mood. 
going to give you another 30 seconds to talk about leads. Well, you stretch your legs a little bit. Thanks. Um, one of the goals was scored by Jack Harrison, and he played in Major League Soccer for a couple of seasons with NYCFC, which is the team that is owned by Manchester City. Um, he's You're just English. beaming with pride that he was in MLS. I am. He's not American, though. So don't get your hopes up, everybody. He's not American. But I did not know that he came to America for high school. He went to something called the Berkshire School in Sheffield, Massachusetts. Then he was drafted into Major League Soccer. He and can't be that good at soccer if he's a European guy who came to America to go to high school. Gatorade National Player of the Year. Seems, seems Gatorade doesn't make mistakes. With their <laughs> that's their new, that's their new the slogan. Year. Yeah, yeah. So Manchester City, uh, NYCFC, Manchester City signs him, brings him to England, loans him out to Middlesbrough, and then to Leeds. So he's been with Leeds for three. This is his third season. Scores a goal in his Premier League debut. Honorary American. Won't play for the national team. Apparently, he is cap-tied to England because he played in some youth Euro championship. Though I read somewhere that he had gotten a green card in the United States. They should change these rules. We want Jack Harrison to be American. Josh, what's your Jack Harrison? I am hoping you guys saw the play of the weekend in college football and befitting the crummy schedule. This was in a Citadel South Florida game. Citadel was punting. The punter, Matt Campbell, bobbled as a snap in the end zone. Manages to get the punt away, which <laughs> in some ways is impressive. Hand it, hand it to Matt Campbell. Unfortunately, in a play that I had never seen before in football, special teamer for South Florida, Omari and Dollison, caught the punt in the end zone. So he had a punt <laughs> return for a touchdown of zero yards, and the punt was a negative 10-yard punt. Had you ever seen that before, Joel? Maybe, maybe I, in I, high school football? I feel like it's a play that I've seen before, but only on a blooper reel. And I can't recall if it had ever happened before then. But yeah, no, it was fairly unprecedented. <laughs> so it actually kind of happened in the NFL, hmm. kind of. And I'm going to get into how and, and why and, and where it happened. But first, let's listen to a clip of this immortal moment. Giants buffoonery struck again in the 1985 NFC Championship when punter Sean Landetta took an astounding swing and a miss against the Bears. Landetta from his end zone. Bears will get good field position. Oh, he missed it! This is the football! He missed it's it! The field. All right! It's Sean Gale! Holy smokes! All right, so what happened there? It was January 5th, 1986, NFC playoffs, Giants and Bears. The game was at Soldier Field, 14 degrees. The wind was blowing 15 miles per hour. Not excuses, just context. Here is what Frank Litsky wrote in the New York Times. Sean Landetta, the punter, stood three yards deep in the end zone, took the snap, and kicked, more or less. Cutting words from Frank Litsky. The wind caught the ball and blew it to the right. Landetta adjusted and swung his leg. The ball brushed off the instep and trickled a few yards. Sean Gale, a backup safety for the Bears, picked it up on the five and ran into the end zone for the touchdown, his first since high school. The play went as a punt of minus seven yards and a five-yard punt return. I got a piece of the ball, said Landetta, but almost none of it. I think I got a piece of it. That never, never, never happened to me before. So that was embarrassing for Sean Landetta. But... It was maybe not the weirdest thing that he was involved in that week. Let us go to the Chicago Tribune. J. 
January 2nd, 1986, Giants punter Sean Landetta, who has a three-year $500,000 contract, has been accused of scalping tickets <laughs> to last Sunday's wildcard game against the San Francisco 49ers. Landetta allegedly sold $22 and $25 tickets for $50 outside Giant Stadium. And here's the kicker. Reportedly even threw in an autographed picture of himself. <laughs> Oh, wow. How did he have time to be outside before the game? <laughs> that is a great question. Stefan, this is not doing amazing work for the reputation of the special teams units in the NFL. You get this guy, he, he should be practicing his drops before the game. Instead, he's out mm-hmm. hawking auto, autographed photos of himself and scalp tickets before the game. You got to make ends what, meet if what, you're a punter. Three years, five hundred thousand. I mean, that's. I mean, is that five hundred thousand per year or total over the three years? It seems like it's total over three years. This was nineteen eighty six. Then that does not does not last time. forever. Yeah, man. I mean, do what you got to do. You got to hustle on the on the edges there. I I agree. So he wasn't prosecuted for this. His teammates gave him crap for it. He um, came to practice and found his. Locker, this is according to the Chicago Tribune, found his locker decorated like a ticket booth with tape on the floor so people could form a line. Um, Classic locker room hijinks. You know, sports funny, not actual funny. Landetta played in the NFL for 22 seasons. This did not ultimately harm his career, either the negative seven-yard punt or the scalping incident. He played from 85 to 2006. He also played in the USFL for three years before he played in the NFL. So he was the, actually the last former USFL player to still be active in pro football. Seven-time All-Pro, two-time Super Bowl winner. But we should always just remember him for the minus seven-yard pun. I think it's only fair. I when remember I him from Tecmo Bowl as well, by the way. So <laughs> all, the, all the important things. When asked about that punt a year um, later, he said, sure, it's something I think about a lot. The fact that I'm reminded about it 20,000 times helps. <laughs> so, Sean... Here's 20,001, just in case you forgot. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis and for Joel Anderson, I'm Josh Levine. Remember, I'm Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.